Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast. Today, I am so delighted to have Joel Stevenson of Yeswear. How are you? Doing well. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Let me tell you guys a little bit more about Joel. He's the CEO of Yeswear, a leader in sales productivity software. Prior to Yeswear, Joel was the GM and founder of Wayfair's B2B division, which he grew to several hundred million in revenue. He began his career by leading the company's home improvement products. Then he moved into his role as the managing director of Wayfair UK. He drove growth for the company's international presence. He served as vice president while at Wayfair and was making their transition into a public company. He's done a variety of sales and marketing roles, and he also has an MBA from the Yale School of Management, Business Administration from the University of Illinois, and he studied Chinese at the Harvard Beijing Academy. He lives in Massachusetts with his wife and children. Wow, (laughs) you have a very, very, very fancy background. You got a MBA from Yale. You have a degree in Chinese. So tell me about how you started your career and how you got to where you are today. A very unfancy start, I would say, uh, to my career. Yeah, I I was first generation college and my family went to the state university. And uh, then I ended up getting a job at a a telecom company called GTE at the time, uh, which is now part of Verizon. And it was one of the when AT&T got broken up, there were all these regional bell operating companies and GT mm-hmm. got a portion of the sort of the places I, I sort of feel like nobody else wanted. So I started my first job in sales. I had a territory of 300 small businesses and we were selling them all kinds of, you know, telecom products and data. This is when, you know, internet connectivity was starting to get big and, you know, video was just a little blip on the map. Um, and so I did that for a while. And then I ended up getting hired by one of my customers who was a company called Tradex, who was had built a a B2B marketplace. At the beginning of the dot-com era, we sort of got swept up in that. We got bought by a company called Ariba, and I worked there for a period of time. So I was able to do a bunch of different sales jobs as part of that. Then the dot-com thing went bust. Uh, they laid off half the company, ended up going to work for another enterprise software company. And then 9-11 happened, and that mm. company sort of laid off our division. And so I, I don't know, I've sort of felt like the universe was sending me a message that maybe I should try something different. And so <laughs> uh, I decided to take a little bit of time off, and then I went and got my MBA at uh, Yale. And there, my focus was really to try to do something a little bit more quantitative because my whole career to that point had been all customer facing. And I wanted to add some quantitative skill sets. So I did a finance concentration and then ended up working for a very quantitative sales consulting firm called ZS Associates, which traditionally does a lot of work in sort of the pharma and medical device sectors. We had worked in in some other areas of the business and did that for a while. I sort of caught the startup bug again, um, went to work for a company in Chicago that did supply chain optimization, where we, I was sort of running these big you know, retail programs. And that company, uh, you know, startups don't always work. This was one where like the business model was a little bit off. And mm-hmm. so I ended up following a couple other people to this little company called CSN Stores in Boston, which had all these individual websites that Later became Wayfair, and I was there for seven and a half years and had a great run. And and as you mentioned earlier, the thing that sort of brought me back into the sales world was I started this B2B business there, which we grew to be quite a big business. Now I think it's a $2 billion division of the company. But Wayfair just eventually got a little bit too big for me, and I wanted to go back to the, kind of the startup world. And Yesware was 
we had the same uh, investor in common and a board member in common, um, this guy Neera Jagarwal from Battery Ventures. And, um, you know, it was a chance to sort of go from a buyer of tech to a seller of tech, but all sort of within the sales productivity and technology world. So that, that was really appealing. And so I decided to, to make the jump and I've been there for five or so years now. Wow. So when you first kind of started out your career, it seems like you took a lot of leaps of faith, if you will. So you, you said, hey, I'm going to try this. No, I don't like that. Let me move here. Let me do this again, this opportunity. So share with me and help us understand how do you make those decisions in early career when it's time to move on? How do you know when it's time to move on to a better opportunity? Yeah, I wish I could say a lot of this. I feel like that, especially early in my career, I maybe didn't think about things as critically as I do now. Um, when that first opportunity came up, it just seemed like very dynamic. It was this young company. I could tell they were growing really quickly because I kept calling on them as a salesperson. And every time I showed up, there were 10 more desks and more people. I was, you know, I was at that point selling, you know, people actually had phones, like office phones back then. And so I kept showing up to like, oh, no, now we need a new system because we used to have a system that supported 20 people and now we need 100. Mm. Um, and so it seemed very dynamic. There was a lot happening. And it just sort of felt to me like being part of like a maybe a bigger fish in a smaller pond back then was just sort of appealing. And so, yeah, I mean, I took a leap of faith that it like it seemed to me to be a good company. And it turned out that it was because we ended up doing well and then we ended up get bought by this much larger company. So I think it was a little bit opportunistic where in many ways these opportunities just showed up and then there was a, there was a chance for me to evaluate whether it was going to be a good fit. But it, maybe the theme is that the decisions that I've made that have worked out the best have been the ones where it was clear to me that the company had momentum mm -hmm. and it was a solid company more so than the role. Because, you know, oftentimes you don't end up staying in the same role that you start at. Right. Um, and I am, you know, I guess blessed to have a relatively diverse skill set where I can do some different things. So to me, it was probably a little bit more about like get into the right company. And then, you know, like some people say, like, if you can get on a rocket ship, don't ask which seat you're going to take. Just take a seat. That's been sort of my experience. Mm, okay. If you're going to get on a rocket ship... <laughs> Just do it, right? Don't focus too much on the how, the what, the why, just do it. So as you transitioned into leadership, can you remember your first days, your first moments when you stepped into that position as a leader? What were some of the challenges that you had? What were some of the joys that you had? It's interesting to, to reflect back on some of this stuff. Oftentimes I tell people when they are wanting to start to become a manager and a leader, I, I sometimes tell them to be careful what, what you ask for. I, I sometimes think, you know, the more people, more problems sometimes, mm. but, there's a, <laughs> but, but there's a real fulfilling aspect to it as well. And so I think for me, I got into management probably with the thinking of, well, this is just what you do. Like if you want to keep, you know, expanding within an organization, my goal ultimately was to be CEO of a company. I was like, well, you eventually got to manage somebody, so I might as well do it. But I think that the biggest mind shift change that you have to make, at least for me, and, and I try to counsel this to others, is that at some point in your career, you're, you're an individual contributor. And like what you're able to do is the sum product of you individually. And at some point, you have to recognize the fact that you are not going to be able to just will your way to success anymore. And as the teams that you're responsible for get larger and larger and larger, your individual contribution becomes less and less important. In some sense, you have to move from sort of making your own success to then just creating the conditions for success and making sure that you have the right people and then the right roles and understand what to do and you know they're developed and, and they're fulfilled. But you know, you just you can't 
brute force your way to victory anymore. And that's, I find that, especially in sales, that can be a real, that can be sometimes a real challenge for folks where you get the real high achieving rep that then goes into a management position. And like the things that got you, that got that rep there doesn't necessarily take you to the next place. That's one of my, I have these things I call Wesleyan wisdoms. And that's one of the things, just because you're a top performing rep doesn't mean you're going to be a good leader. And I really like, it's like, watch what you wish for. You say you want to be a leader. You say you want to be a manager, but um, it's not as easy as you think it is, right? You go from managing yourself, your territory, your region to managing people and your success is no longer a reflection of just you. It's a reflection of the team, of what everyone else does. So as a new manager, as a new leader who has taken that leap, they've stepped into that first position and now they're like, okay, so this feels like I'm in the middle of the ocean. I have nowhere to go. What are some of the tips that you would give somebody in that first 30 to 90 days to set themselves up for success in a management position? Yeah, well, the first thing I would suggest is just get to know your people well. Um, you know, the some people get this intuitively. I think for others, it maybe takes a little longer for this to set in, but it's very hard to treat everybody the same way. Mm-hmm. And you're going to typically get better results if you tailor your management style to the individual person and how that person operates and what they're motivated by and what they need to do to get better. And so I, I think that's that's what I would generally say as a first step is like really get to know your team. And then once you know your team, then you've got to think start to look into what are the processes or systems that you're going to use to move your team from whatever level of performance it is right now to some better level of performance. So whether that's, you know, trying, you know, do people understand what's the most important thing? Um, is it a question of like, we're doing things well, but we're doing the wrong things or we're doing the right things where we're doing them poorly and trying to just get some like, very broad sense of where people are spending their time and how they're spending it and then trying to come up with a plan of, you know, sort of the, the as is state to the to be state. And then, you know, you, just, you work the plan with your team. So I feel like you're in my brain, Joel, because I have this. So I'm a recovering chemist. All my listeners know that. As a recovering chemist, what I tell people is it's an equation. People plus process equals profit. And you literally just walked us through that framework. Get the right people in the right seats, understand what makes them tick, how do you motivate them, then give them the tools they need to get their job done. (laughs) And that's gonna lead to the profitability of the company, of your team, or whatever you're doing. Because if you have the right people, but they're not empowered to do their job, then we're not gonna achieve our goal. It doesn't matter how good your people are. And vice versa, if you have really good technology, but you don't have the right people to really use it or put it into place, then it never balances out. That's right. There's plenty of examples of both of those things where people make big investments. And I mean, we see that as a technology vendor, people, you know, buy tech like ours or or similar tech, and they think that's going to solve all their problems. And it really just amplifies what you're doing in many ways. So it's like, it's going to make you, you know, better. It might might actually make you worse in some cases. Mm. So you talked to us about being a people manager. When you move to that position of, okay, I'm managing people. I got this down. I know how to manage people. Then you get into the whole different wild west of managing managers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So talk to us about what is the difference between managing individual contributors and managing people managers? Yeah. Well, for people managers, it tends to be a little bit more of, sometimes I say that the thing that you're really buying with management is judgment. 
Like that's mm-hmm. really at the end of the day, what you're get like what you're hoping to get out of manager is good judgment in the end. Mm-hmm. Hopefully by, by the time somebody gets to that level, they have sort of the work ethic and they're smart, like all those kind of things that sort of the, the things that might've disqualified you before you got to that point. But if you're really getting to a decent level of management, like I, to me, like you're buying judgment. And so the thing that I tend to try to understand from people and work with them on is mostly those judgment aspects about like, how are you thinking about this? And like, could you think about it a different way? Or where are you stuck? I mean, why are you stuck on those things? Because you can't, you know, as much as you want to, it's similar to what, like when you're moving from an individual contributor or first manager, you can't do all the individual contributor things anymore. I mean, you also can't manage all those people anymore. Like you need to let the person actually do the management and People are so unpredictable and life is so unpredictable that there's just really no way to script it all out ahead of time. And so to me, the best thing you can do is understand the way that somebody makes decisions and how they reach a certain judgment and then try to help that person get better at that process, whether that's making a call on a person that maybe isn't working out. Maybe it's, you know, whether to, you know, invest in training or whether it's to change a team structure or whether it's to coach somebody through, like whatever it ends up being. You know, to me, it's very much of a judgment game. Mm. It's really the um, the way that I think I would sum that up is how you influence change, right? Because as a manager of managers, if you will, as a leader who's managing managers, it's like you can't get all the way down to that little inside rep, inside sales rep that is doing their things. But you have to think about this person who I am managing, how do they influence change down the chain, right? And so in helping them think about how their judgment, how what they do actually has an effect not only on themselves, but on the entire team. And you have to be so many levels away from that. How do you balance in any kind of leadership position, managing versus leading? Yeah, I suppose that the bigger the organization is and the more layers that that get up to it, the, you know, the probably the more time you have to spend on leading versus managing. There's actually, we used to, there was an old um, HBR interview that Jeff Bezos gave, which I thought was pretty insightful on this topic. So I might just quote him a little bit versus tell you what I think, which is he talked about this journey at Amazon where at first he was kind of an individual contributor. And then he was, then he, he sort of couldn't manage this stuff anymore. He sort of had to focus on managing managers. And then eventually he got to the point where he could go deep on something and have some influence in an area. And then beyond that, it was a point where like all he felt like he could really do is just make sure he was hiring the right people and letting them do the job. And he said he was, he always kept one area that he went deep on, but eventually the business got so big and so complicated that it was mostly about getting the right people in the seats in his mind. And I think that's true. The further up you go, you got to spend more time making sure that your immediate team is strong and then people are growing in the right direction. So, you know, you could imagine, you know, every person is unique and whatever you say, they're going to take a little bit differently. And so the bigger the organization is, the more clear the vision has to be. And probably the more time you have to repeat yourself Mm. about this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing because people forget there's a lot that comes up in the day to day. And, you know, I I continue to to have to learn this myself as a leader where it's like, I probably just haven't said it enough. Mm. If if the message coming back from the organization is that we don't understand this, either I didn't explain it clearly enough the first time or I didn't say it enough times. Mm. The onus is on you. Yes, yes, yes. When people don't understand, when people are not, you know, executing your vision the way that you stated it, as a leader, the onus is on you to first be introspective. And I always ask, I say, have you given this person, this team, this 
initiative 100% of what they need to be successful. And if you can't answer 100% yes, then you have to at least try to change, right? And like you said, I can just hire the right people. And then I have to ensure that those people that I'm bringing on the bus, I have the processes in place. I have all of the things in place to help them be successful, right? And so I just, I love that. And you talked about Jeff Bezos. And I think that a lot of the large organizations, you know, people these days are like, well, you know, it's a brand and you can't be the face of a brand or you can't be the face of a company. I'm like, I don't even know how long Bill Gates, I mean, not Bill Gates, I'm sorry, Steve Jobs has been gone, but I still think of him when I think about Apple. And so when you think about those external stakeholders and the way that they influences change internally, it's all about how you show up and how you lead. Yeah. And I think in today's world, the external versus internal bits are even more complicated just as, you know, everybody's lives kind of get commingled with work and social media is a very different element that, you know, I mean, Steve Jobs really didn't have to deal with that much, um, you know, when he was around and, uh, you know, from Twitter to, you know, to Instagram, TikTok, what, like the, the lines are all sort of blurring. And I think everyone's got to kind of there. Yeah, I tend to be a little bit more of a a private person. So I'm not really like shouting out there on social media, but you know, people watch what you say and what you do and, and it all has an impact. Absolutely. Your words have power, right? And so, and you're right, that external piece that we all have to deal with these days, whether we're a sales leader, a CEO, or even just an individual contributor, that plays a huge part in how we show up to the world. Because, you know, you're in your position now and you may want to stay there forever, but you may also want to move companies in a year, two years, five years. And what you do today is going to impact that. And so really ensuring that the voice that you have, the message, your vision, your value is consistent and it's what you believe in. Because I don't like to tell people that, oh, you have to think this way, you have to do this, or you have to do that. I just want you to be 100% of who you are all the time. And so show up and be authentic. So let's transition a little bit. Tell us about this amazing company that you're a CEO of and the reason why that this product was introduced to the world. Yeah. Uh, so Yesware is software primarily for salespeople, but really for anybody that's uh, in a sales orientation to use it. And what we do is we integrate very deeply into your inbox to help you understand things like, you know, who's engaging with your messaging, what's messaging is working, try to save you time by adding templates and being able to put multiple pieces of communication together. And then ultimately, you know, if you're a Salesforce user, we'll take all that data and, and synchronize it back to Salesforce. But as you use it in a team setting, you start to figure things out like, oh, which what we call them campaigns, but which sort of versions of, uh, of events that we string together result in more meetings or, you know, what ends up, you know, getting somebody from sort of stage one to stage two. And as those learnings get shared across the sales team, then everybody on the sales team can become more productive and the results of the organization improve. So we sort of started the company. I'm not the founder of the company. I came in a number of years ago, but the original founding philosophy of Yesware was that there wasn't really software built for salespeople. There was software built for sales managers, you know, and I remember doing CRM implementations a long, long time ago, and it was always about like, hey, like the Rolodex is going to leave the company and you don't want the Rolodex to leave the company. It was always a, a sort of a command and control, uh, you know, you got to know what's in the pipeline so you can forecast effectively. It was never about how can we make 
XYZ rep the best rep they can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, that CRM was never about that. And so Yesware started from the perspective of the rep of like, how do we make the rep more productive? How do we make the rep better and achieve better results? And that's sort of how it's it's grown. And it's a you know easy to use software. We have a free version of it that you can use forever. You get on the website and you can sort of get value right away. And then you know you can do more complicated things with it over time. Oh, that's awesome. Salesperson enablement. <laughs> Enable your salespeople to use the tools that you've given them to really do their job better. Because you're right, there are a gazillion CRMs out there and when they're not implemented the right way, it is a tool for management to beat you over the head to say, do this, do this, do that. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that, right? And so that is how it's being used and salespeople just don't use it. So a tool that actually shows them a path to revenue, how I can make more money using this technology, that sounds amazing. Yeah, we think so. Um, we sort of pride ourselves on being super easy to use and, and getting high adoption amongst reps because, yeah, people realize that, you know, in the one aspect, the more intelligence that you have about a selling scenario, whether it's, uh, you know, is a person open my emails or, you know, who is this person, all that stuff can lead to better results. And once you start to get used to that, then, you know, you start to try to do things that are a little bit more powerful. Okay, well, you know, now I know that when I send this email after the discovery meeting, I get a better result, but maybe I can get an even better result if I send this other one with an attachment. Mm. And oh, so people start to look at the attachment. What if this attachment's better? Oh, they're spending more time on the pricing page of this. So you can go very, very deep on this stuff, but I think it, it sort of starts from the point of view of, you know, don't waste time doing things that you could automate because it's hard enough to be a rep and you should really be spending your time with the customer and understanding their business and asking good questions. Like that's the important part of selling. And then the more information you can get, then the more effective and tailored you can make your process. So. And I was speaking with a sales leader earlier today and he said, I want all of my salespeople to be entrepreneurs. I want them to have an entrepreneurial mindset. I want them to take ownership of their business and by empowering them to really do that, to not just be order takers or dialing for dollars, but really be able to say this kind of messaging doesn't work. Okay, so I had this discovery meeting and then I sent this email and something was broken because it didn't convert. So let me change that a little bit. And it Mm -hmm. allows them to take ownership of their business and change it the way that they see fit. And as a leader, your job is to mentor, to coach, to develop. It's not to come down with the iron fist and say, no, that's not what the top rep is doing. So you have to do this or you have to do that. And so I really like how your software fits into that whole mission where we want all salespeople to take complete ownership of their business. Yeah, it can be powerful if you can create the right conditions within your organization where you allow everybody to sort of experiment a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think we see that putting the power to experiment into the hands of sort of the frontline reps can be Mm -hmm. very powerful. Some companies don't like that. Some companies like to do it with sort of a central kind of top-down command, and that can also be effective. But Mm -hmm. where we see some real magic, particularly for small organizations that maybe don't have the resources to have a massive enablement team and sales ops and all that stuff is, you know, allow your reps to experiment. And then if you've built the right kind of collaborative culture, then when a rep gets a win, they want to share it with the rest of the team. Now, everybody else on the team got better because a rep, you know, showed some initiative and said, like, I'm going to try this thing. I think this will work. If you had a team of 20 and you have 20 people, you know, constantly running these experiments, you're probably going to get better results than if you have a team of 20 and you've got one sort of top rep that figures everything out him or herself. Yes, absolutely. Allow your salespeople to have their own brains 
because that is really what makes a good salesperson. Being able to think outside of the box and having like, okay, I wanna try this, no, I wanna do this. That's really how they take ownership of it. And not only does it make a good sales rep, it also helps your culture, the culture within the company, because that is a place where salespeople wanna stay, grow and develop because they feel supported. They feel that their voice has been heard. And in today's world where there's such high turnover, people are are leaving for anything. Um, This new generation that we have coming into the workforce, building a culture where people want to work and want to stay is what we as leaders, as CEOs, as whoever we are, that is what our ultimate responsibility is. Yeah, and I've been a part of, you know, both types of organizations. And, you know, in the past, we had built a a subset was like very much command and control and like, you know, don't think for yourself. And it's like the, you know, and I, th- I see this in a lot of big tech orgs that are sort of high velocity where it's like, there's this unwritten rule that says, okay, fine. Like you can have your Nerf guns and your beer kegs and, you know, we'll pay you reasonably well, but like, don't think like we have the smart people over here that think you don't think. Mm-hmm. And as long as that contract is sort of maintained, then everybody's happy. And then as soon as that contract starts to get broken, then there starts to be issues. But in my mind, you know, if you're really going to run it that way, I feel like maybe the better investment is in software to make some things more self-service because you really want your rep to be the person that's going to take what your company offers and match it up with what another company needs. And that should be a more dynamic process. And if, if it's all just wrote, like follow this exact script, then probably software can do it better. Absolutely. Use people's brains for what they should be expected to accomplish. I went shopping recently and I got up to like a self-service kiosk. I put all my clothes in the little bucket and automatically scanned them and did everything. And so the lady was just there. She was like, anything, I'm just gonna put these in a bag for you, like anything else you need. And that's the same thing with salespeople. If there's something that can be that automated, there's a solution out there. There are gazillion SaaS tools out there (laughs) that you can find. But I think that the, the first step is really based on the leader allowing their people to think outside the box, to do those things on their own, they're not always going to be successful in everything they do. It's okay to let them fail. And then you're there to help them understand what went wrong and change it up for the next time. But as leaders, we have that ultimate responsibility to mentor, to coach, to lead our people. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's, you know, there's a little bit of a two-way street here where, you have to demand, uh, you know, a certain level of like effort and productivity from the reps. Like if you're in an environment where people just aren't putting forth the effort, then it's hard to have the conversation about like, hey, give us more autonomy. It's like, well, you sort of earn the autonomy by being able to put forth the effort. But when you can marry up those two things of like people that are really giving their all plus the ability for the reps who are really on the front line to hear things and adapt and bring that back to the organization, that can be really powerful. Absolutely. So you've shared a lot of amazing insights with us. Can you share a something, whether personally or professionally, that has impacted the way that you lead? Yeah, there's been a bunch, I suppose, over time. But I think, you know, one that sticks with me is the first time I had to do a layoff as a CEO mm. um, was very difficult. And I had done it before as sort of a, a manager or a division head, but I'd never done it as a CEO. And it like it just hits a little bit harder when you're a CEO because you have, you know, in theory, the ability to control more of the situation. And the thing that really bothered me about the first time that that happened was so many people were taken by surprise by it. And at some level, that's unavoidable. But I felt like I had not done 
a good enough job keeping people in the loop about where things were so that people were so surprised by it. And so from that point, I resolved to be more transparent with the team about what we're doing and, and where we're at and where things are going. And, you know, sometimes that works against us, but most of the time it works for us and it's still a work in progress. I'm not perfect at it. You know, the team would tell you that, but that's where I sort of strive to be as transparent as, as, as possible and not so much worry about the consequences. Mm, transparency. It is a characteristic that many leaders struggle with because you have that onus that's on you where I have to be strong. I have to hold the ship together. I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to do all these things. But what we don't realize is being honest and transparent with our employees helps them feel like they're really a part of the organization. And yeah, sometimes it does bite us because if we are like, yeah, so this is what's happening. We had a low quarter and X, Y, Z, then we might have some turnover. However, I really, I think take a different thought. And I feel like if those people are jumping ship, they're meant to jump ship anyways. And so we just want to refill the ship with the people who really want to be there. So I applaud you and kudos for really stepping into that area of transparency where you are open and honest with all of your employees. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's a work in progress, but uh, hopefully pay off in the end. Yes, we are all a work in progress for sure. So Joel, this conversation has been amazing. What is the one best way that listeners can get in contact with you if they want to connect? You could just email me jstevenson at yeswear.com or, or you can find me at uh, on LinkedIn, uh, Joel Stevenson at Yeswear. And you know, if you want to learn more about Yeswear, just come to the website, uh, yeswear.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joel, for your time, your talent, your expertise and sharing with the listeners really how to show up as better leaders and taking ownership and being honest with yourself as well as your team. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, enjoy the conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And that was another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast. Be sure to check out our website where you can get your free guide to people plus process equals profitability. Until next time, and everything that you do, transform your sales. 